Welcome to the Nurse Leader Network Podcast with your host, Chris Racinos. Wherever you're going on your nurse leader journey, we're here to help you get there. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Nurse Leader Network. We are so thrilled to have you with us today. Today, we brought you somebody that you may be very familiar with. He has been podcasting for the last eight years and has done a tremendous job coaching nurses in the profession. Um, I'd love to welcome today uh, Nurse Keith. Welcome. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. I'm so happy to hang out with you on the microphone. I know. It's awesome. So, Nurse Keith, I'm sure many of my listeners have heard of you, but tell me tell me a little bit about your journey. Like, how'd you get to where you are? What are you up to right now? Oh, man. How'd I get where I am? <laughs> That's a long, <laughs> long answer. Well, um, I'll just say really quickly, I've been a nurse since 96. So, coming up on 25 years this year. And let me see. I've worked mostly, I've never worked in acute care. I've really hung out in ambulatory care and case management and outpatient um, intensive care management and home health and things like that. And you mentioned that I've been podcasting since for eight years. That's right. We launched RNFM Radio, which was actually one of the first three pot nursing podcasts on the internet, I think, three, three or four and that launched in January of 2012. So that was eight years ago. And my current show, The Nurse Keith Show, has been going for, I don't know, six years. And I have just over 300 episodes now. And, you know, podcasting is super fun. And I also do career coaching for nurses across the nursing lifespan, as they say. And I do a lot of other things too. I'm a freelance writer. I speak at conferences. So I have a lot of different pots in which I dip my my career interests, so to speak. What made you decide to go from ambulatory nursing into coaching and podcasting and all of these different things? What what was the moment? I wanna I wanna feel like I was there with you. Oh wow. Well I was living <laughs> in Amherst, Massachusetts at the time. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico now. And our son got married and he was you know, off doing his thing. And, and my then wife and I, we just, we just felt like something new was in the offing and she had already discovered coaching. So I did some certifications in coaching and I was still working as a nurse and it was really interesting to me. So I just kind of launched a very small practice kind of under the radar and I was just kind of checking it out. And Along the lines of that period of time as well, I began writing. I'd already been blogging. I started my nursing blog in 2005. I was one of the first nurse bloggers out of the gate. And that blog is actually still going now. So it's having its 15th anniversary this month. Uh, but <laughs> Thanks. That's beside the point. But I, I was freelance writing, I was doing some coaching, and then I had an opportunity to speak at a conference, and things just sort of continued to fall together. And once we pulled up stakes and then settled here in Santa Fe in 2010, I was just ready to, to really go a little bigger. And even though I was still working as, as a nurse, I felt like I wanted my side hustle to get bigger and bigger. So I just put my stakes in the ground in terms of writing, speaking, podcasting, and coaching, and just said, okay, I'm going to really focus on this and see what I can do. And, you know, 
10 years later, I'm still plugging away and it's been a really interesting journey, I have to say. Now, now are you still working as a as a nurse in the clinic setting or are you just focusing on um, your business? I left my last real quote unquote nursing job about four years ago. I was the chief nursing officer of a home health agency in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And right now I am not employed by anyone other than myself, though actually I'll I'll admit right here that because of the pandemic, because of the economy, I actually am taking on a small part-time remote position from home so that I can, you know, keep a little bit of base income going right now during these difficult times of the ongoing pandemic. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of nurses are doing that right now. And I think a lot of nurses are um, diversifying their income streams, right? So, you know, maybe I'll have part of it at, uh, you know, a quote unquote employer, but then how can I utilize my skills in a different way to, you know, kind of create the additional uh, streams of income? Exactly. Yeah, I think it's super important. Now, so you've been a coach for so long. What is one thing that you've found throughout your coaching or throughout even interviewing, you know, 300 people or 300, having 300 episodes on your podcast? What is the one thing that you think nurses need coaching on that they don't know they need coaching on? Hmm. Good question. People tend to know if they're having a hard time, they know they need help with their resume or, you know, things like that. Kind of what I call the nuts and bolts of career building and career development. Resume, cover letter, LinkedIn, interview skills, you know, those are their, that's kind of the meat and potatoes of, of coaching in terms of careers. And that's great. And I love doing those things. It can actually be really fun and very creative. And I enjoy my clients a lot. One thing I feel like nurses don't always think about, and I think it's just because it's not in our DNA professionally to do this, is to think about the long term, to look at the marathon, not the sprint. And I really like to help my clients take their camera and pull it back and not be so focused on the minutiae. And granted, a lot of my clients are parents. They might have elderly parents they're caring for. They might have disabled spouses. They might be single parents. You know, they have a lot going on in their lives, and the pandemic makes their lives even more complicated. But I feel like I try to help them say, look, you know, a job isn't necessarily a career. And if your job doesn't feel in coherence with the life that you want to be leading, that's what we need to look at first. Because Sure, I can help you do your resume and find a job, but I really like to help nurses look at how do I find actually a job that will feed my interests, my career, my passions, and what I want in the big, big picture. So I hope that makes sense. I just pulling the camera back is one of the best metaphors I can use. I think you hit the nail on the head with that because. I know even for myself, like as I was progressing through my job, I, I knew I wanted to to be in leadership. Not when I, my very first leadership job, actually, I hated, I was like, I thought leadership was a devil and I didn't want to ever go into leadership. But once I actually got in and understood it, um, I wanted to continue on in leadership roles. And I didn't have a particular maybe role in mind. Um, you know, I just kind of saw what was out there. But <clears throat> I did see that some of the folks that had some of the best uh, capability to make 
changes was chief nursing officer, right? And so it was a position that I had desired um, in terms of being able to make change. I didn't actively seek it. And then when it when it happened and I was asked to apply for that role, um, it, the stars kind of aligned. But what I was missing was the perspective of how well that role aligned with who I was as a person in terms of being a mom and volunteering, you know, very actively and podcasting and all, all of the other things that make up Chris. And when I got into that role, I realized I had to let a lot of those things go. And had I known that prior to getting into the role, I, I probably never would have taken that role. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I, I think that role was definitely right for me, but not the timing was off. Like maybe after my kids had grown up and, you know, I had a little bit more free time at home, but the timing was just not right for me. And so, um, you know, I think what you're offering people is, is, is priceless. They don't, it, it doesn't even, you know, equate in terms of how important it is to really realize how, how well your job aligns with your desires as a person. So um, that's fantastic. I love that lens. Thanks. In terms of coaching. So we talked a little bit about, you know, your, your thoughts around um, helping people pull back the lens, but why do you think uh, coaching is important for nurses who want to grow their potential? Well, not everyone needs it. And there's, it's no fault or blame to people who do need it or don't need it. Everyone is different. People have different types of, let's say, use that metaphor again, lenses that they wear. And some have different life experiences or mentors or people in their lives who've helped them get where they are and can help them get where they want to be. But I feel like sometimes we just kind of get stuck. We don't really know how to build a career. And think back on nursing school. And anyone out there can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but, and I actually hope I'm wrong. But most nursing schools, when you're finishing, let's say, an ADN program, or you've done a direct entry master's, or maybe more the bachelor's program, how much professional and career development education do you receive? Generally, what I hear from most new grads is that they have like a two-hour seminar during the last semester, which is called professional development. And what they do basically is they their assignments are to write a resume and write a cover letter. And that's basically their career development seminar. So something's wrong with that picture. And I know nursing schools have to teach to the NCLEX. I understand that. I get it. But nursing students also need to be given the tools to be able to go out there and actually create a career, not just get a job. And that's where I feel like coaching can really come in handy and give nurses, whether they're novice or not, more tools and more resources so that they can build the, the life and the career that they want. And that's where I feel like the rubber hits the road. Yeah, that's true. I uh, I do teach nursing and <clears throat> I've seen different things introduced in that class. And I've really seen such the gamut from introducing, uh, you know, theoretical models and looking at, you know, nurses and history that maybe have leadership skills that we want to adopt as our own and move forward with to, yes, the resume writing. I've seen mock interviews. Um, I've seen a whole variety of things. What I haven't seen is any standardization of that material. And I haven't seen anything related to uh, just, you know, everything that you're kind of speaking about. So that that definitely is a huge gap in in terms of preparation for our nurses. 
maybe it's time for NCLEX to really look at like the whole nurse, right? Versus just like the clinical aspect of the nurse, but really what are the, like we need to really examine like what the competencies are that nurses have upon graduation because nursing isn't just about patient care. There's, there's so much more to it. And so maybe that's something we need to have our, our uh, boards of nursing begin to really look at in terms of, I know they're redesigning the NCLEX now, but maybe, you know, NCLEX 7.0, whatever version we're on needs to really examine. You hear that that. NCLEX writers? Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. That would be awesome. I, I don't hold out a lot of hope for the, the NCLEX to, to address those issues because, you know, with the ongoing push to professionalize nursing, not that it's not a profession, but to further professionalize us and help us to feel more on par with other healthcare professionals. I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure that the nursing world will turn its eye in that particular direction. That would be really, really cool. But I would love to see nursing programs themselves just take that on and realize, huh, yeah, we want really good NCLEX passing rates for our grads because it looks really good and attracts more students and et cetera, et cetera. But we also want our students to be happy and healthy and and have really awesome careers in the bigger picture. Like we want our alumni to come back and say, wow, I was so prepared for my career. Thank you so much for teaching me how to do all those things. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know what programs out there actually do that. And that's where nurses really need help. And so that's where I like to lean in because that's the pain point I feel like I've discovered and really like to, to help nurses overcome that pain point. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, model. And I think you are definitely addressing a huge gap that um, needs to be addressed. And for nursing schools, I think their challenge is really um, figuring out how to fit it all in. But by realizing you don't have to fit it all in, right, there's a certain percentage of clinical competence that really needs to come from within the individual. Mm-hmm. And so we could really facilitate learning and take some of maybe that content heavy areas out to put in some of the other skills that really make up the art of nursing. Now, I have students often, um, or even like new grads that because I was a chief nursing officer, and I'm sure you probably have had this to reach out and are just like, you know, I really want that position. You know, how do I get what do I do? How did you get it? They want me to share my story. And I always remind them, you know, my story is my story. And that's it. That doesn't mean that's how it's gonna you'll get where you want to go. We all have different stories, but I give them some tips and tricks that I'm aware of. But how do you recommend that nurses, you know, demonstrate leadership before they even have any title? Because I think that's, I always tell them, do good in the job that you are in now and and ask for things that are outside of your typical job duty. And you'll be noticed versus, you know, I want to be a nursing manager. Let me try and do nursing manager type of role. Um, But what what are your thoughts around how they can demonstrate leadership uh, before they have any and you know title and why it's important. Yeah, that's that's a great topic. I really like to talk and write about this. So, first of all, you start demonstrating leadership the day you sit down in your first nursing class. So, leadership doesn't necessarily mean that you're taking control of the class and kind of like being the class president and telling everybody what to do. <laughs> Though I've seen <laughs> that happen. You know, there's always there's a couple in every crowd, right? But I think it's more just demonstrating that you're a team player, demonstrating that you want to set an example for others and not in a, like, I'm better than you type of way, but in a, in a way of just 
showing like, okay, so this is how I comport myself in the world. This is how I establish relationships and communicate. And you lead by example. You don't tell people what to do. You show them through your own behavior and your words and your actions and your compassion, et cetera. So I believe it starts the moment you sit down in nursing school. And I believe it's one of the first things that should be discussed in nursing school, but it's not. Once you're out in the world as a nurse, one way to to begin to build a quote-unquote career portfolio with leadership skills is just to do the same as I just said in nursing school. Be a leader. Just demonstrate leadership. And one of the terms I really, really like that a lot of nurses tend to not have heard because it's more of a term that I think is more common in the business world is intrapreneur. Now, a lot of folks have heard of entrepreneurs, but they haven't heard of intrapreneurs. Is that a term that's been in your world these days, Chris? You know, the only reason that I know what an entrepreneur is is because yeah. I had a guest on that told me what it was. Awesome. But I, but I, I, I've never heard the term used by any in any facility I've ever worked in. Ever. It's generally not. It's generally not. It's really more in the corporate world and business world. But I've been teaching people to be entrepreneurs. An entrepreneur is basically a an employee, a staff member in any career, any business, it doesn't matter what the industry is, who quote unquote takes ownership of their position. They don't just show up at work, do the minimum, clock out and go home. What they do is they come to work ready to be creative, ready to solve problems. They look for things that maybe don't seem quite right. And they don't take it on unilaterally and say, okay, I'm going to change this because everyone's doing it wrong. That's not an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur will notice an issue, like say they notice, huh, the way we set up our field for central line dressings, I noticed that it's done a little differently here than it was at the place where I used to work. And I noticed that our central line infection rate is about 15% higher than other places where I've worked, other facilities. I wonder why that is. So the entrepreneur is curious and she or he does some research and figures out, oh, here's a best practice, an evidence-based practice that we're not doing. So they go to their manager, go to their chief nursing officer, go to whomever, the unit manager, and says, hey, I did some research. Here's the evidence. I think if we change this, this actually might decrease our nosocomial infections from, from central lines. And they look at the evidence and bring it to the maybe the policy procedure committee, and they're like, hmm, yeah, let's give that a shot. Let's give it a six-month trial. So there's an example of entrepreneurship, looking for problems and then being curious enough to say, huh, I'd really like to fix this because it would be really cool just to, just to make things just that much better. So does that, does that make sense as one example of entrepreneurship? That absolutely makes sense. And I love, absolutely love how you defined it in terms of it's not that you take it on and you're like, you guys are all doing it wrong and I do it right. Because I think that is something that I would frequently see around people that are really trying to do well. And it, it's no fault of their own. Like it's not, um, it's not a bad thing that they have a great idea and they want to share it. But you, the way that they communicate their ideas is critical to anybody even listening to them. And I think that's a huge mistake that a lot of people make in terms of their 
presentation or communication of um, new ideas um, and really making it not a brag, but making it more of a, like, how can we do this together and make it better? So yeah, um, yeah. let's work together. Yeah. I had this awesome idea. Let's see if it will actually fly. Yeah. <laughs> Something like yeah. a little bit of a, a humble brag. That's, that's a term my friend Ashley Clevens Hayes uses, which is the humble brag, which is actually more for like interviews. And when you're, when you're out there trying to market and sell yourself, but another form of entrepreneurship and this is something nurses do, many do, but they may not think of it as demonstrating leadership, but it is, is joining committees, getting involved in initiatives. And, you know, you don't want to volunteer your life away at work. You don't want to be at work, you know, 70 million hours a week, but, you know, being involved in a committee, a unit-based committee or whatever it is that's happening. And, Showing that you're interested, showing, again, your curiosity and your desire to make things better and to be collaborative. That's another way to demonstrate leadership or to, let's say, get a certification because you think it's a really good idea and you might learn something and it might make you, one, more marketable, which is great, but it also might help you bring better evidence-based best practices to the workplace. So there's tons of ways to demonstrate leadership, and I think they can all feed into the same that same mixing bowl, so to speak, of what makes you who you are and why people see you the way they do. Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking about this information. I mean, it's it's super powerful, yet it feels obvious, right? It feels like we should all kind of know this, and it's great. I love it. Now, how do you think, uh, or do you think that a nurse leader could help empower her team or his team to become entrepreneurs? Like, are there any thoughts you have around like how we could help people become that? Yes. When I was the CNO, it was a small home health agency, but a small but mighty. And when we would have our staff meetings or even emails and, you know, conversations going on between meetings. I would ask my staff for feedback. I'd say, well, what do you think of the way we're doing this? Or what are your ideas? And I wouldn't feed them anything. I would ask open-ended questions and I would encourage them to tell me what wasn't working. And I'd say, you know, I, I really need you to be as involved as you possibly can, however involved you'd like to be. And I want you to feel that you have ownership of your position. You have ownership of this agency and the way we do things, and we're all in the same boat together, and a rising tide lifts all boats. You can tell I like metaphors. And, <laughs> um, and I would just urge them to, to speak their mind or to write stuff down or to share with the group in an email or a Google Doc and just say, if you have an idea, if you're curious about something, Tell us what it is. Ask a question and just put it out there. Don't be afraid. And you know that they always say the you know the the silliest question is the question we don't ask, and also the the silliest solution is the one that we don't bring up in the conversation because we're shy or we're afraid to get shot down. But if a leader creates an environment and atmosphere for where everybody feels comfortable, everybody feels like they're on equal footing. And that any idea will be pondered and tossed around with respect, then that's a great way to create an environment where people feel safe 
to come forward and say, hey, I have this crazy idea. And, you know, the crazy idea might not fly, but still it's an awesome conversation to have and it, it sparks other conversations. So that's one of my greatest recommendations around really getting your your staff, your direct reports to feel comfortable and safe. Do you think it's possible in times of crisis? So I'm thinking to like today's state, right? We have had the highest number of deaths for, because of COVID. We have um, here in Los Angeles, you know, moratoriums on, you know, not using oxygen in the field if your O2 is, you know, not under 90. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're not transporting patients that can't be resuscitated in the field to back to the hospital because of capacity. Do you feel like that's something that could be done in times of crisis as well? I think it has to be done in times of crisis. I know there's not necessarily as much time and people might be listening, you know, saying, well, you're not on the front lines, Keith. We don't have time even to go to the bathroom. I understand that. And at the same time, I'm sure there's moments where there's nurses or doctors or respiratory therapists or nurses, aides, anybody out there, it doesn't matter where they are in the hierarchy who might see something and say, huh, if we just did this one little tweak, this might really change things or this might ease the flow. And it doesn't have to be a grand idea that changes everything because that takes time and that takes a lot of energy and committees. And, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, that might not be possible. But a small little change, a small little tweak, like I mentioned that central line, you know, let's change this procedure very, very slightly. It might really help us. And, you know, perhaps there were some hospitals early on in the pandemic where in the COVID units, the ICUs, they weren't proning patients yet. You know how they prone patients so that they can lay on their stomachs because that helps the lungs expand in a different way and they turn them. It's a Mm -hmm. very labor-intensive process if you don't have a special bed for it. But proning became best practice to a large extent. And way back in the spring, I remember talking to a colleague and they had a traveler at her hospital And she was saying, hey, all the other hospitals I've been at have been proning patients. And I noticed you're not proning them here. And here's some articles, here's some evidence-based data showing that proning is actually can be really helpful to these COVID patients on vents. So, you know, she didn't create this practice, but she brought it to the attention of the people at her particular place where she was traveling. And they looked at the evidence and they then I guess the the larger powers that be at that facility said, okay, let's start proning our patients. Here's the procedure and the policy. So do you see what I mean? It doesn't have to be a big, big thing, but it could be a big thing. And that's where entrepreneurship comes in, even in the most dire of moments. Yeah, I'd agree with you wholeheartedly. I know there was several times that I had great recommendations and it literally just took me going up to the floor. I'd go up to the floor and say, hey, we're going to have a five-minute huddle. Um, whoever's you know, not directly doing patient care right now, come on over. And even in the COVID units, I didn't want to waste PPE because we didn't have it. So we had the unit divided into P- you know, the PPE area, the COVID area and the non-COVID area. And they could gather on the respective sides and I could stand in the middle and talk to both groups at the same time. But literally it was just five-minute huddles like, hey, what's going right? What's not going right? any ways that we can improve it. And then we'd always ask about space staff and stuff. So how's the space doing? Is there anything we need to address there? Staffing, how are we doing on staffing? Any recommendations on what we can do? 
and then stuff like how are we doing on our PPE or whatever it is that we needed, right? Oxygen, whatever. Um, and that doesn't have to be, I know we're, ta- we've talked a lot about inpatient, but even in the ambulatory space, right? Like how are we doing? What, what can be done for change in the academic setting? I know um, since I st- currently have students, you know, we're doing a lot of different changes around like virtual learning and different things like that. And so I, you know, in class, I'll take like the first five minutes and just say, hey, I'd love to get your feedback on what's going right and what's going wrong, you know, like a, a alpha, a delta kind of thing. So mm. um, I, I totally agree. I think that's probably one of the most important times to do it because that's when change is just happening so rapidly um, and you want to make sure people feel buy-in so that they keep, can keep up with the change, right? That's right. Yeah, those. that's a good example. And and people really need to feel that there's there's an open field and where they can throw their ideas in and they will be considered seriously and without judgment no matter how left field, so to speak, that idea might be. And if the leader creates that type of atmosphere, even under duress during a pandemic on a COVID unit where things are absolutely insane, as long as people feel that there's space for them, I think it's a really important way to foster leadership and also just to foster creative thinking. And we know in nursing that creative thinking can lead to great things. And we just need to make sure people know that that's allowed and encouraged wherever they happen to be. Yeah, that's true. Because I've heard also so many nurses say like, what's the point, right? What's the point? Nothing's going to change. I I can't, I can't even count how many times I've heard a nurse say, what's the point? Nothing's going to change. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I once did a podcast and wrote an article on what I called the seven most dangerous words in healthcare. And I think it was something like, because that's the way it's always been, or that's the way we've always done it. I think that was yeah. it. And those are dangerous words. And in moments of dire circumstances, those are even more dangerous words. It's like, well, we've never proned patients on vents before. And, and I don't care what the evidence says. That's just not the way we do it here. Uh, and, you know, that can have a huge impact on patients and also on on well on the entire facility. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think needs to be top of mind for nursing leaders right now while we're in this uh, COVID nineteen pandemic? Mm. Well, of course, like we were just talking about best practices, right? We have to make sure our nurses know what the best practices are. We need to support them in that. We need to protect them. Obviously, that's been top of mind since last spring, and there's still complaints of nurses not feeling protected from the pandemic and from infection on the job. The vaccine rollouts are great. That does confer a great deal of of protection, so that is offering people some sense of hope. Even though this is another conversation entirely, I can't believe how many healthcare providers, including nurses, are saying they're not going to get the vaccine. But that's another episode, right? So they're saying like fifty percent, about fifty percent are not getting it. Yeah, I, I'm. Don't get me started. Well, I actually just started myself, <laughs> but you know, I think we really need to focus on the what's right in front of us, and we need to make sure that we are watching our nurses really closely. I was listening to a podcast the other day. 
think it was Sanjay Gupta's coronavirus podcast from CNN, and he was interviewing someone, and they were talking about burnout. And you know, burnout—that word's been all over the place, right? So, yeah, burnout's a thing, and that's something we need to watch for signs of. And it can get pretty damn bad. And I'm hearing all sorts of stories, including. You know, the one really well-known story of the ER doctor in New York who took her own life last spring or summer. That was a really grim reminder, but that was just one story that got into the New York Times. We don't hear the other stories, or we hear some of them. So we need to watch our nurses really closely, not just for burnout, but what this person on Dr. Gupta's podcast was talking about was moral injury, that it's deeper than burnout. And we might recover from burnout in the short term, or it might take us longer to recover. But moral injury, this deep-seated, almost spiritual injury that nurses and other healthcare providers, let's not forget anyone else, are experiencing, that is something we really need to keep our eyes on. And I, I don't have the answers. I can't say how we do that or what the potential outcomes will be if we do or if we don't. But the the deeper injuring of our nurses at their core, I think that's something nursing leaders have to really keep on their radar, despite the chaos around them. Because if our nurses drop like flies getting sick, that's one thing, and dying. We know a lot of nurses have died, and physicians and others too. But there's some dropping out of COVID care, understandably, after 10 months or 11 months, and there's some who are dropping out of the profession. So we have to look at the short term. How are our nurses burning out? How are they feeling? Then we have to look at the mid to long term of, are they going to stay in the profession? And are they being injured to a point where we really need, they need deep psychological and psycho-spiritual intervention to help them actually survive this this situation. That's a very long answer. My apologies. No, that's it's it's a perfect answer and it's exactly what's needed. I am a member of a um nursing group on Facebook and in that group, I want to say it was maybe a couple weeks ago, a travel nurse here in Southern California posted that she had just completed a 12-hour shift where at her eighth hour they ran out of paralytics for patients on ventilators. And she, she showed, posted a picture of herself and she was devastated. I mean, you can, you could see the devastation, the desperation in her face, in her eyes. She just kind of wrote the story about how she felt looking at these patients who didn't have what they needed to remain sedated on, on ventilators. And I can tell you as a nurse executive that the nurses that I, that I was most concerned about were the nurses that injured patients or that um, felt like their behavior or lack of caused harm to patients. Those nurses take that to the grave. They take that pain. They take that uh, feeling of guilt, they, a feeling of shame, feeling of, you know, I, I could have done something or couldn't, you know, what could, more could I have done? They take that to their grave. And, and it causes deep psychological trauma that I think a lot of our nurses don't heal from. And so I'm glad that you brought it up and I'm glad that, it, that you shared um, what you shared because yes, burnout is real and burnout is something you can address uh, for the most part, right? We can change jobs. We can begin doing more self-care. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we can address burnout, but 
moral injury uh, hits you at your core, at the very nature of who you are as a person. And that guilt um, can lead to death in the same way that cancer can. It can. That's right. And that's well said. And, you know, before the pandemic, I don't know if all of your listeners are aware of this, before the pandemic ever was on our radar, even in our consciousness, we were losing approximately one physician a day in the United States to suicide. The The estimates were somewhere around 350 to 400 doctors a year in the United States alone. We don't even have any information that I know of in terms of data on nurse suicide. So we need to watch not just for burnout, not just for fatigue or compassion fatigue, but the moral injury that can lead to people taking extreme measures. And like the doctor in New York City who took her life last summer, you know, people saw that she was having a hard time. She even was sent away by her her employers to be with her family for a few months because they saw what was happening. And even at that point, her family couldn't couldn't stop her. And, you know, that was a cautionary tale. And I think the cautionary tales are not going away anytime soon. And here we are, you and I are recording this on the 15th of January, 2021, right? And the pandemic in many places around the world is at its worst since last March. Like in Great Britain, in England, they've lost more citizens than they lost during World War II. So that is, this is... (laughs) We we can say this is the defining moment of our lifetimes, and that might sound like a cliche, but there's going to be life before the pandemic and life after the pandemic. And we're a lot of our lives are going to be defined by what happened during this period of time. And if leaders need to take responsibility for keeping a close, close eye on those who they're responsible for. Yeah, I agree with you. I and I think it's not even just the pandemic. I, um, my son has been struggling with, with what's going on in politics. Like he's really struggling with understanding the rioting that happened at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, if you look at um, nursing and, and struggling with the pandemics, and then in the midst of a pandemic, we have uh, riots going on because of, you know, politics. We have, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and, and all kinds of racial and disparities, you know, coming to light. We have there's just so much going on and compounding it that it is literally a perfect storm for having a mass loss of individuals uh, because of um, mental health issues that have not been addressed. I think you also brought up another interesting um, point around, you know, you said that that physician had been sent to her family, you know, and that that they couldn't save her. I think that's a huge gap as well, because a lot of things um, we think of as nurse leaders is, you know, okay, we'll give you some time off. But Time off in itself is not going to heal it, right? These families are not clinicians for the most part. Um, they don't know um, a lot of the warning signs, or if they do, they can be easily brushed off. And what I mean by easily brushed off is um, my listeners know that my daughter died of suicide. And, um, you know, one of the biggest uh, red flags of give, you know, suicide is uh, giving away prized possessions. Well, my daughter was, she was a pre-med student at UCLA and an avid gamer. And she gave away all of her gaming equipment about two weeks before she died. And her response was, mom, I'm giving it away because I'm, I'm trying to become a doctor. I need to focus. And I totally bought into it. I believed it. But it was a red flag that was absolutely there. And I think 
you know, sending these folks home to families as a, as a nurse leader, it's really important to remember, like, if they have time off, that's not the solution. It's really, really important to make sure that they're getting um, the, the clinical care that they need. Um, you know, uh, a therapist of my daughter's reminded me, you know, it wasn't your responsibility to care for. That's our, that's a clinician's job is the responsibility. So I think that's important to know. And I think if there's listeners out there, you know, one in um, three people will have been affected by suicide. They'll either have taken their own lives or have known somebody who has taken their life before we die. Like that's just a stat for United States. And so knowing that, I think it's also important for those nurses that are their survivors, right? If you have somebody who has passed away on the unit um, or you have family members that have passed away on the unit that we really rally behind the rest of the unit um, to show that we care and to make sure that uh, clinical intervention is available and um, implemented when necessary versus just kind of thinking, you know, you know, I'm here if you need me, That that's not really the solution. So I think there's so many moving parts towards preventing suicide in nursing that we don't even realize, um, but we need to realize it's part of our jobs as nursing leaders. Yeah. And Chris, you know, you're very courageous in sharing the story about your, about your daughter and, you know, that uh, the loss of a child, there's, there's no comparison. And they say there's, there's no loss that's, that's greater. And, you know, I, I, admire you and feel great compassion for you. And also, you know, I'm really moved by the fact that you're, you're public about it and you, you share about it. And, you know, you had, um, you had Sharika Miller on your show, I think it was episode 18, right? And you were both talking about the foster care journey, right? And was that, that was the episode, right? If I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, And, you know, those of us who are willing to share our struggles publicly, and I don't mean to get off topic here, but you know, <laughs> sharing our 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 struggles public. I share about my struggles with depression on my podcast. I share about having chronic pain. You know, so when we're vulnerable, whether we're vulnerable here in a public space like you and I are in front of hundreds or thousands of people, <laughs> or we're vulnerable to our direct reports, like you asked about what a nurse leader can do say during the pandemic to to work with his or her direct reports you know one thing is to say look you know this is the cno saying this or the nurse manager i'm having a really hard time you know my mom has covid my dad's in a long term care memory unit you know i'm struggling you know and i think the ability to be able to talk about one's struggles is is powerful and that's a form of leadership. And going back to Sanjay Gupta and his CNN coronavirus podcast, which is I listen to every morning, five days a week, he talks a lot about having three teenage daughters and he's very open about his struggles working from home, you know, having a having working from his office in the basement with no windows all day, you know? So yeah. whatever we share as as nurses as nurse leaders as citizens as podcasters you know that can have a really big impact on other people and you sharing about your journey opens the door potentially for other people to feel comfortable and safe to do that and i don't know i i think i totally lost the thread of where we started <laughs> with the original question but it doesn't it's okay matter. we're on a we're going we're on a good journey right now so yeah. we're good <laughs> yeah and i feel like that's true leadership 
being vulnerable, that is really a mark of a, of a, a truly transparent, powerful leader. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, that Brene Brown's entire, uh, entire business and, and brand is, is around vulnerability as leadership. So I totally agree with you. And, you know, I think I didn't realize I had read it and knew, you know, yeah, like I knew it in concept, but I didn't realize it until I gave, uh, one of, um, my very first speech, uh, uh, that, that talked about my, the loss of my daughter. And I actually gave it only a couple months after she passed away. Mm. And, um, it was super hard. I had to practice like not to cry during that speech. And I didn't, which was good, but I made the whole audience cry, unfortunately, but I didn't realize how powerful the speech was until after I had given the speech, I had a line of people standing there to talk to me after I came down off stage mm. and one after another, after another, after another, and this is pr- prior to the pandemic, my daughter died in 2017, but one after another came up to me and said, my child has struggled. My child has attempted to take their life. My child is not talking to their friends. My child stopped eating. One after another, I heard stories and, and they said, how do I help as a mom? How do I, what can I do? And I, they had no outlet. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know, um, you know, they didn't know that it was okay to talk about. It was something that was like a family secret, right? With something that's happening and something, but, but they had no outlet. And so I think that's really the power of vulnerability is letting people know there are outlets and we have to normalize mental health issues the way we've normalized cancer. When we hear of a, a family member or a colleague or somebody getting cancer, we rally behind them. We have GoFundMes. We wear shirts that say, you know, support so-and-so. We have campaigns. We do everything. Mm-hmm. We're there with them. But with mental health, we're embarrassed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, a, it just, it's a disorder. We're looking at like chemical imbalances of the brain where people don't ask for it, but, and it can lead to death in the same way that um, cancer leads to death. It's, I mean, it's, it's a higher, more children and teens die of suicide than they do cancer. And, but yet we're not talking about it and we're not normalizing the conversation about feelings and we're not being transparent about our own struggles and how to, how to seek care or how to help out these, uh, these folks and these family members that are struggling. So I think it's a great and timely conversation because of how um, bad the suicide rates are right now. I mean, they're just, they're completely uh, rocketing, you know, skyrocketing and, and I think it's just time for us to talk about our, our mental health, our, our status of where we're at and, you know, how we can help take care of one another. That's true. Yeah, you're, you're so right. And in this society, in the United States, you know, we, people are very, some people, or this is a holdover from, I think, previous generations, don't talk about money. Like, you don't talk about whether you're in debt. You don't talk about how much you earn, things like that. And we also don't talk about mental health. And that's why I'm really open. And, you know, I had an episode, uh, it was sometime in the fall or the summer of 2020, I had a doctor on who wrote a book about being a healthcare professional with mental illness. And he's really out there in terms of being very public. And he and I had a pretty frank conversation on air about struggling with depression and you know, if we can set that example, whatever, whatever it is, we can really open the door for people. And your vulnerability on that stage that day was a really striking example. I bet, you know, it opened your eyes to how people don't have those resources. And when we're nurse leaders and we're not paying attention or we're not paying attention to the right things, you know, we're looking at our nurses' productivity and their documentation, but we're not noticing that hollow look in that nurse's eyes, you know, 
we're not noticing how she seems completely completely blank and she feels like she's not present you know what is going on with her and um you might find out that her her daughter just maybe she just hurt herself or she just found out her her daughter's cutting or whatever it happens to be and we need to we need to be open and that's where true leadership really that's where it it has to land and if we're not leading in that way i feel like we're we're just leaving such great opportunities for connection and compassion we're just leaving them sitting there without taking up the mantle of that and in making it making it part of our mission yeah i totally agree i mean this conversation i just feel is um is just like perfect i feel like we we really are talking about what is impacting our profession and you know how what people can do about it right a lot of times we talk about the problems and not the solutions and i think we've really given some great examples around how to help um how to help others and uh, you know just to kind of go back to what we were talking about uh, on the stage I, i think i also realized that um i wasn't alone and so i think for nurse leaders that are listening it's really important to understand that when you share your story you'll find you're not alone and you'll find your network as well right so being a nurse leader I, i think was probably one of the most lonely times that I had in my life, especially as an executive, you know? And so I think it's really important to express that vulnerability to, to remind yourself like, hey, what you're going through, a lot of people are going through. It's not just you and you don't have to go through it alone. Um, so definitely think uh, that's a, something to just kind of mention there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, it's a great conversation to have and I'm so glad you've created a forum specifically for nurse leaders. It's really needed. Yeah. I mean, I believe so too. In terms of what you're up to, I mean, where do you see the profession headed in the next like 10 years? What are some trends that we need to be watching out for? Well, like I mentioned probably 10 minutes ago, one of the trends we need to watch for is attrition from the profession. You know, we know that a a fairly sizable number of new nurses leave the profession within the first two or three years. So that's not okay. So we need to see why are we hemorrhaging so many nurses, whether they're novice nurses who just, the, it eats them alive in a couple years and they, they just get spit out. Or are there other nurses who are leaving because of how the pandemic has gone for them, how their workplaces have thrown them under the bus, whatever it happens to be. So we need to watch our profession very, very closely. You know, it's great to be a number one in the Gallup poll year after year. That's great. And, you know, it's also great that people bang pots and pans at seven, you know, whatever they do to thank <laughs> healthcare professionals. That's, that's great. However, we need to look at nurses in and nursing in a more, for lack of a better term, a holistic way. We need to look at nurses financial well-being, their emotional and psycho-spiritual well-being, and their physical well-being. You know, self-care can sound like a real cliche after a while. And, you know, you can go home and light a candle and take a bath and meditate. And those are great things. I never I never uh, cast dispersions on them, but we have to go deeper than that. And I feel like the profession when we can catch our collective breath. I don't know when that's going to be, but someday, (laughs) somewhat soon, I hope we're going to be able to catch our collective breath. And the profession really needs to take a deep 
look at itself. There has to be some navel gazing going on here, and we need to take stock of where we are. And yes, there's this drive for further professionalization and more bachelor's prepared nurses and more doctorally prepared nurses. That's great. That's our professional development collectively and individually. That's wonderful. But we need to look at the bigger, bigger, bigger picture. And, you know, if we get caught down in the weeds as a group and we don't keep our eyes on that horizon and see the bigger, the bigger forces around which, you know, that are revolving around us, then we, we, we lose something there. And I don't say I, I in no way purport that I have the answers. I just know that there's a lot of questions that have to be asked and somebody has to ask them. Yeah. I, I would bet with a hundred percent guarantee that if we don't address this issue um, and we have, you know, an entire profession of burned out or all brand new because people are leaving or, you know, burned out and let's say all brand new and let's say nurses that are morally injured, we will not be voted the most trusted industry because how can you trust an industry that's burned out and making mistakes or that's kind of constantly on a, you know, brand new learning curve or, you know, that constantly is just so um, emotionally um, disturbed because of what they've witnessed. How, how can that profession remain the number one trusted profession if we you know, ourselves are are struggling to keep our heads afloat. Like it's just not gonna, it's not real. It's not gonna happen. And maybe that's what it's gonna take. Maybe it's gonna take us falling off that number one, um, you know, trusted I- industry for for us to realize like, what are we doing to ourselves? What are we doing? And, you know, I, I don't know what it is. I know it usually takes something really terrible to happen before we actually stop and say, okay, let's get it together. And I, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope it doesn't take any more less, loss of lives or or any, you know, any of that, but, but I'm, I just don't have the answer either. And I, you know, just hope that together as a, as a profession, we can really begin to address this because I I see where we're headed and it's not somewhere good. Right. Well said. And, you know, like you and I both just admitted, we have questions and not answers and questions are important. So anyone out there, if you have something you're thinking about that you want to bring to your committee, your manager, your nurses association, Whoever or your legislator, whoever you want to bring it to, don't feel like you need to have the answer to everything. Just bring an open-ended question. Just start the conversation, and that's that's where everything begins. And you know, Socrates knew it. You know, you ask a question, and then you answer the question with a question, and that's what keeps the conversation going and opens people's minds. So, if we can open one another's minds, that's a great place for us to start. And we just can't go back into our little silos when this pandemic is over, because that's that's the danger. And we need to see what we can do to make that not happen. Yeah, I agree with you. Gosh, Nurse Keith, I could talk to you for days at a time. Like I could just sit here and meet you and I could talk and uh, have our own like Socratic uh, conversations and solve world hunger. Um, but right. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad. 24 hour podcast. There we go. I love it. Yeah. Um, So this has been wonderful. If folks want to find out more about you, check out your podcast, check out your coaching, check out your books or where you're going to be speaking next. Where can they find you? Uh, Nursekeith.com is the best place. You can find my podcast there and links and everything. I am on Facebook, Nurse Keith Coaching, and also Instagram, Nurse Keith Coaching. And I'm Nurse Keith on LinkedIn. 
And I mean, Nurse Keith on Twitter, and then I hang out on LinkedIn a lot as well. And you'll find links to my blog on my website. So I'm around. You can just, you can Google me (laughs) or go to nursekeith.com. And the podcast, The Nurse Keith Show, is on any app that you can name where podcasts are are consumed. So feel free to listen. Um, We think we're at, I think I'm recording episode 312 today. But there's also a lot of bonus episodes. So we're, you know, we're heading towards, I don't know, 350 probably in the next next three months or four months. That is outstanding. I love it. All right. And just so uh, just so all the listeners know on LinkedIn, he's uh, Keith Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N. That's right. And it's actually Keith Allen Carlson, A-L-L-A-N. So that's, it's linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash, which every LinkedIn URL is like that. And then Keith Allen Carlson. And I welcome people to send me a personalized connection request. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was great having you on the show. Thanks again. Thanks, Chris. This was wonderful. And you, you be well. And let's look forward to how this year unfolds and hopefully in a very positive direction. All right. Bye. 